Life is a journey. That's a common theme that is found in all kinds of literature and different movies and poetry. And a journey usually has an end in mind. Sometimes we will use the simplest of sound bites to communicate that. The road to the top or the road to success. Or during March Madness, the road to the final four. How many of your brackets were broken? I mean, everybody. <laughs> All kinds of upsets during this particular March Madness tournament. Now, mixed with the metaphor is often the difficulty of the journey. It's a long and winding road. It's a long road out of Eden. God bless the broken road. All kinds of songs talk about that. In the midst of some of the best poetry, the journey is a movement towards something bigger and greater. Emily Dickinson wrote this. It's called Time and Eternity, and it's quite a lengthy poem, but one section of it says this. Our journey had advanced. Our feet were almost calm to that odd fork in Bean's road, eternity by term. Our pace took sudden awe, our feet reluctant led. Before were cities, but between the forest of the dead. Retreat was out of hope, behind a sealed route. Eternity's white flag before, and God at every gate. When we walk through this world, we might have some premonitions sometimes, of what lies ahead. We might know that because of some of the decisions that we have made kind of lends itself to what's coming. But other times on the journey, we look back over our shoulder and we don't know where the fork in the road actually led us down a different path. Sometimes we are stepping into the deep mysteries, not only of the unknown, but the uncontrollable as well. And so in this journey that we are on, what we find is that we often have to somehow just by faith take the next step and then the one after that. In our study called Lithographs, Impressions of Inclusion, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, one of four different Gospel accounts in the New Testament that give to us kind of a summary of the life of Jesus. None of these four Gospels are complete. None of them detail everything. But they often use themes to help us understand what's coming next. In the Gospel of Luke, there is the theme of the journey. And I want to suggest that as we watch Jesus move toward Jerusalem, where he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be crucified and he will be buried, that every movement toward that destiny mattered. Every mile mattered that he was on. So in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 51, as I read it a little bit earlier, he talks about this coming destiny, one that would cause him to turn around and retreat 
Except, like Emily Dickinson says, sometimes there is nothing there. It's sealed off, and all you can do is move ahead. But it's interesting that in verse 51 of Luke chapter 9, knowing what's lying ahead, it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, that's another way of saying he's going to die Yet, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He determined to take one step at a time, move one step in front of the other toward this destiny that he was on. If it were you and if it were me, I doubt that we would have that same resolution, right? Knowing the suffering, knowing the heartache, knowing the misery, knowing the unknown. And yet Jesus sets out on this journey that's going to lead him from an area known as Galilee all the way down to Judea where the capital city of Jerusalem is. So the structure of the Gospel of Luke from chapter 9, verse 51, all the way to chapter 19 is this journey that he's moving toward Jerusalem, moving toward Jerusalem, moving toward Jerusalem, until finally, the event we know as Palm Sunday, he determines to actually go into the city, and he is riding a donkey instead of a war horse. So this whole section, chapter 9 through 19, is he's on his way, he's on his way, he's on his way. Now, when you think about this, I am sure that most of us would love to have what is on our phone, that GPS that tells us every turn, right? Or as part of a throwback, those of us who are older remember AAA. And AAA, the American Automobile Association, used to set out trip ticks. Does anybody remember trip ticks? Okay. And you'd go in and you'd say, I'm going to drive from Cleveland to Orlando. Can you put together a route? And this is what it would look like here. Here's a triptych. Used to be bound up at the top and it used to have maps in the middle of it. But what was unique about this triptych is not just the map, but do you see the yellow highlighter there? Usually a AAA representative sat with you at the table and they took off that yellow highlighter and they would mark the route to go and then they would circle uh, different areas. You're going to run into construction here. You're probably going to run into slow traffic here, right? Now you can do that on your phone now. There's apps for that where you kind of know what's up and coming. But back then you kind of looked at the page, or I didn't, because I was usually driving, but Esty would usually look at the page. And when you accomplished a goal, usually these maps like this only was maybe 75 or 100 miles in length, and then you turn the page, right? And she used to say, we spent another page. (laughs) And turn it over. And a sense of accomplishment, right? That you're moving toward your goal, and you know everything that's in your way. God is not a AAA agent. He never sits down with us 
and he never yellow highlights everything for us. Sometimes we will run into some rough roads and some rough weather and some traffic jams and some construction. And even though we would love to know what the next turn is, sometimes all we can do is keep going. It's not less important to make that same journey, and it's not less difficult simply because you know what's coming. It's just that our curiosity and our disdain for mystery helps us to kind of know what's up and coming, and many times what we find is, well, we're going to be delayed here or we're going to be delayed there. In this thing called life, many times what we can do is just take the next step, but we don't know how long that stretch is going to be. Sometimes it might be a week, and sometimes it might be a year. Sometimes it might be a lifetime. But it doesn't mean God doesn't know where we are on the journey, does it? He sees us, and he knows us, and he knows the difficulty of every mile. Sometimes we would like to cut out those miles. There are people now that won't drive anywhere. They fly everywhere because you're able to get over that construction. And yet at the same time, even in the airport, you never know what you're going to run into, right? Even in the airport, you don't know if your, your flight is going to be bumped. And so this thing called life that we are all on is really a journey from one point to another to another. I mentioned this section of Luke talks about Jesus' journey from up in Galilee, his home region, all the way down to Jerusalem here. And that's the way this book is structured. After we're told about the Lord's birth and his um, preparation for ministry, we find that he ministers up in the area of Galilee for a while from chapters 4 through 9. But from chapter 10 all the way to 19, here in this middle section called Samaria, he makes different stops in different villages along the way. And then finally... In chapter 19, on Palm Sunday as we celebrate it, he comes to the edge of Jerusalem. And there he will have the triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, but within a week's time he will suffer and he will die. Now, if you were to map out on this journey of Jesus, you would find that he doesn't take a direct uh, uh, point from Galilee down into Jerusalem. If you followed and plotted the map line, you'd find that he will travel back and forth and you'd go, you're sure making this trip more difficult than it, it needs to be. But in those small little villages that he stops, he does significant things. He shows us significant insights as to who he is and what he's trying to do, not only in the lives of his disciples, but in those of us who are trying to follow him as well. So when you follow this, you'll find Jesus kind of going back and forth and doubling back until he finally comes to that moment where he is on the edge of the city. 
So let's take a look just for a moment at a couple of different mile markers. We can't look at all of them here this morning. All we can do is highlight a couple of them to kind of show you where it's going. There's three that I want to just mention very briefly. And it begins here in Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, we're told about Jesus and his interactions with some of the religious leaders. That seems to be a point of conflict throughout the Gospel of Luke, that he's always doing things that's getting other people upset. Well, the first one that we're told about here is in chapter 13, verse 10. It says, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Jesus was always doing miracles, things that were bringing about healing and purpose in other people's lives. He made the mistake of doing a healing on the Sabbath day. Within Judaism, the Sabbath was the holy day in which no work was to be done. But Jesus said that he was doing the work of God, his Father. The religious leaders didn't like that. You break the rules, you're in trouble. And that's how they respond. It says, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. In other words, wait till tomorrow. Wait till tomorrow. You can wait till tomorrow. But Jesus said this, you hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? He says, you don't care that you violate the Sabbath when it comes to your investments. You lead your livestock out and you make sure they're fed and you make sure they're watered. And that's okay, you hypocrite. You do what's in your own self-interest. But you don't look out for the interests of other people and the needs of other people. Here is a woman that has been bent over for 18 years. Here is a woman who suffers from some type of physical ailment that prevented her from being able to just stand up straight. Jesus heals her on the Sabbath, and as she stands up straight, she begins to see life in a different light. Religious leaders didn't like it, but the people did. It says, when he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things that he was doing. So, every mile matters, and he stops 
And he sees a woman who's had this ailment for 18 years. He could have passed on by. He could have blew on by because he's more important. No, Jesus says people are more important. People are more important than your own profit. People are more important than your own possessions. If you water your oxen on the Sabbath, why certainly God will give life to a woman on the Sabbath. Well, that happened several times, and he intentionally heals on the Sabbath repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke. However, when we come to chapter 17, there's an added element. So in chapter 17, it says in verse 11, Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. And they stood a distance and called in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back. Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and he thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were there not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise up and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus stops along the way. He takes the time to notice the outcasts, lepers who had been excommunicated from the community, people that weren't allowed to sit down and have a meal with those who were whole. Ten of them are calling out, have mercy, have mercy, Jesus, on me, and Jesus stops because every mile matters. And as he sees these lepers, he tells them something unique. One of the things lepers need to do if they happen to be healed was to go show themselves to the priests so that they could be declared well and they could be welcomed back into the community. Jesus didn't heal them right that second. He said, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went. Isn't that an interesting comment? As they went, they were healed. I wonder if we would have just stood there and said, I'm not leaving this spot until I know that you're going to heal me. But in faith, these 10 set out on their own journey. And as they are on this journey, they began to look at their skin and they began to see it clearing up. They keep on going, and I'm sure they showed themselves to the priests, and they were marking their way to get home to see their wife and their children and their relatives and be declared whole again so that they could experience the love that they had been lacking. But there was one of them. There's one of them that stopped. There was one of them that turned around. There was one of them that went back. 
there's one of them that fell at the feet of Jesus and said, thank you. And he was a Samaritan. He was the half-breed. He's the one that the Jewish people disliked because he wasn't a pure race. He says, where are the others? Is it only you that come back? Is it only you that was healed? Where are the others? No, on their journey, they were too busy. On their journey, they were too excited. On their journey, they had to get home. But this one turned around and came back. And he said, thank you. One last story. In chapter 19, right before Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem, he stops at a city, a small city called Jericho. And here's how the story goes. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Again, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Do you see the journey theme here? How it keeps popping up in the Gospel of Luke. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And so he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said, Salvation has come to this house today, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a short man, the text tells us. He probably grew up in a poor family. He was of Jewish origin. He probably had been bullied a lot when he was a kid. He had to develop this tough exterior. And Zac became very violent. He began to defend himself. He began to take care of the fact that there was no one that was going to push him around anymore. And some of the local tax collectors that would collect taxes for the Roman Empire saw this short young man. And they recruited him, possibly, to be a tax collector. And so Zacchaeus became not just a tax collector... The text tells us he was the chief tax collector. He was the boss. He grew up in the ranks of a tax collector, and he cheated a lot of people out of a lot of money. 
in that day, tax collectors would often bid for areas that they would enforce the payment of taxes and the overpayment of taxes because that's where they made their profit. And Zacchaeus was excellent at his job. And he could extract not only the money that he promised in the bidding of this contract to the Roman Empire, but he extorted all kinds of money. And he became very, very wealthy. He, at some point, became the chief tax collector, which I would say you would best identify as the mafia boss. Okay? He's the one that kept all the other tax collectors in line, and he said, you didn't meet your quota this time, right? All the people hated Zacchaeus. He was wealthy, hmm. but he, he didn't have a community, except other tax collectors, other sinners, as the Pharisees would describe one day Jesus comes into the city of Jericho and the crowd is around him because he's been doing all these miracles for people, healing people. Here's Zacchaeus who's a short individual, kind of the Danny DeVito you might say. He can't see Jesus coming so he decides he's going to climb this tree. Something's happening in his heart. He's curious about Jesus. As he sees Jesus coming, he sees the crowd around Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops at this tree that he has climbed. And Jesus looks up, says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm coming to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus says, come on. He probably puts out quite a spread. He could afford it. The best food, the best wine. And Jesus sits down with this man. And other people are beginning to complain about Jesus, right? That he is this friend of sinners. And all of a sudden, in the middle of dinner, Zacchaeus stands up. He says, Lord, There's a strange warming that's going on inside my soul. Sort of like John Wesley talks about that warming of the heart that led him to Christ. But on this occasion, he stands up. He says, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. And if I've done anyone wrong, I'm going to pay back four times the amount I've extorted from them. That's quite astounding, isn't it? That's quite astounding that he begins to push his money down to the bottom instead of forcing people to push his money back up to the top where only he could take advantage of it. And Jesus says, hey, everyone, look, look here. Today, salvation has come to this house. Now don't think that this is talking about getting into heaven after you die. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a change of heart, a change of life, a change of perspective, a change of being, a transformation 
that could only come about by this strange warming of the soul that comes about through Christ. Today, salvation has come to this house. And it can come to anyone, Jesus says. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who've lost their way on this journey. Those who've made some wrong turns along the way. Those who didn't have the compass to get them back on track. That's what I've come to do. I've come to lift up those who are bent over. I've come to cleanse those who feel dirty. I've come to give a second chance to those who just have basically ruined other people's lives. And the disciples are watching all this. And they're thinking in the back of their mind, you already said you're going to die, Jesus. And here we are still following you. Here we are continuing to learn about what life really means. When you take a look at the life of Jesus, one of the things that you'll notice is that every mile he traveled mattered because every person mattered. And then when you look back on your life and you see all the mile markers of your life, and for some of us in the room here, we have a lot more miles markers in back of us than we have waiting in front of us. But God was there. And he was involved. And even though he didn't yellow highlight for you every turn, somehow he was the navigator of your life. That's what Nicole Norderman is singing about in this song. Let's watch. Spread the map on the table with the coffee stay. Put your finger on the places. Show me where you've been. Was that California? Your teardrops dry You drew a circle around Georgia Can you tell me why? I see shoulda bends, coulda bends Written all over your face Wrong turns and bridges burn Things you wanna change It's history Yeah. 
mystery that don't define you. You're free to leave it all behind you. Every tear on you Every mile matters, doesn't it? I guess the great challenge of faith is while you're on that road, you recognize that that mile matters. It shaped you. It made you who you are. Sometimes it forced you to be maybe what you didn't want to be. But we move ahead in faith. And every mile that matters to God, also matters to other people as well. Here's why every mile matters. It's because every person matters as well. Every person matters. All of you, all of you matter. You are deeply loved. From your very first breath to your very last breath, God loves you so much that he travels with you. You might not know he's your co-pilot, but he is. And as he travels with you, he will continue to shape and make you who he has always wanted you to be. You are an individual. He will not take that away. You are unique. He will not take that away. But you also have gifts that you can either bury in some mile marker along the way, or you can surface them and be like Jesus, make them matter in the lives of other people as well. Would you stand with me, please? I came across this as a closing prayer that I'd like to read for us before we head our way out of the building. It's called Prayer for the Road Ahead. I seek you, God, in the spaces of my life, the spaces between what I've done and what I've left undone, the spaces between my convictions and my actions, the spaces between all that I hope to do and what I've actually done. I come with humility, knowing that I can't always see the way I've disappointed you, nor can I always see the long-term effects of the good I've done. This is a prayer for the road ahead, which is an empty space stretching before me. Fill me with a burning compassion for my brothers and sisters, a love that will not let me go. Give me courage to give boldly, love simply, Hope deeply, risk greatly. My light is small, my time is short, but let it shine for you, always, 
ever, all for you. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And may he give you peace until we meet again. Amen. If you plan to come to the uh, Continental Breakfast on Easter morning, there's a uh, uh, sign-up sheet out there on the bulletin board. Let us know, please. Thanks. Bye.